Hello and welcome to another episode of The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Drew, uh, obviously we're recording here in December and the fall semester has ended. I know a lot of people, um, as we're recording this, are in the midst of finals or are preparing for finals. And you and I got to compete you know, a little bit over a week ago from when we're recording this at uh, UVA's fantastic tournament, the Great American Mock Trial Invitational, known to most people as GAMT. Uh, it was both of our first opportunity to be there, and I think we both had a fantastic time. So how'd you feel about you know, competing at GAMT for the first time as a program? So it's funny. I think that GAMT, there's such a weight that it carries of you're going to GAMT, and it was a lot of fun. Toby and the rest of UVA does a phenomenal job of running a very great tournament, Always having three judges in a round is great. Um, there definitely there's a learning curve to Gamti. It's the same place every year, and we didn't realize how literally the courtrooms that they use sucked all of the sound out of that room. And our first couple rounds, it was an adjustment period. We we did our normal courtroom demeanor, and it was not loud enough, and judges could not hear us, and our scores suffered deeply from it. But uh, it was a learning curve, and we kind of figured it out towards the end, and. It ended up being a lot of fun. I think that to me, the the thing that's awesome about it is that whenever you're getting 24 or 20 of the top teams in the nation together, you're going to have four good rounds. And that's what we had. And I think it's an invaluable experience going into the next step of the season. Yeah, I I totally agree. We, you know, I was also really happy, you know, we have a, a a proud tradition in UMBC mock trial of traveling several hours and playing teams that we could drive an hour to scrimmage. <laughs> um, and we were lucky. We got to see a lot of, you know, round four, we got to see uh, Berkeley, who we've never hit before and things like that. So mm-hmm. it was a really great experience. And of course, you and I were talking about this earlier, but no surprise. Uh, it's a little funny, but but again, not shocking at all. You had the two big tournaments at the end of the season, Yale and UVA. And so, of course, Yale wins Yale and UVA wins UVA. Um, completely, you know, uh, meritoriously, I'm sure, given that those are you know, two of the best teams in the country. And it just goes to show what we've talked about already, which is that um, Yale and UVA are going to be there at the end. We're going to be sitting there round four at nationals, almost certainly talking about those teams being in contention for the, for the final round. Something that uh, I actually wanted to bring up that the camp team that Toby does for their awards, which I just thought was really interesting. And I, I wanted to discuss it more is the fact that they, they award extra ballots or extra points for witness and attorney ranks for how many ballots that side of the case wins. So to take Sabrina, who obviously is a phenomenal competitor, um, got 36 ranks on the defense and 30 ranks on the plaintiff. To those of you that may look at that and say, how does one get 36 ranks with six total judging ballots? That's because UVA won six defense ballots um, as a team, and her her total score was the 30 ranks, which she must have gotten with the six wins that they also got coupled together. And that's how you get to 36. Um, Similarly for Steven Torres uh, going over 30, clearly he did very well and Cornell also did pretty well. Um, So the, the purpose of the, that system, according to Toby was that uh, essentially, you know, you want to reflect that when you're in a good round, doing well as an attorney or doing well as a witness is harder than when you're in a bad round. And it makes a lot of sense in that you want to recognize the best of the best for awards. Um, it was definitely interesting to me. I, I didn't know that they did that going into it. And hearing uh, hearing UVA talk about it during the award ceremony, I know that it took my team very aback. It was really, oh, whoa, like 
maybe that means someone has a chance that didn't or someone that we thought was going to be getting an award isn't all of a sudden. It it really throws a wrench in the traditional style of awards. And I thought it was a lot of fun. I think that one of the nice things about invitationals is that you get to experiment with things like that. And it definitely is is different. I don't know that I think it fully accomplishes what they're hoping it does. Um, and, and I'll explain that with an example. Let's say that I play, you know, my first round and my fourth round on the plaintiff and my middle two rounds on the defense. And let's say the first round I get, I play a really, really good team and get destroyed. And I go 0-3 that round. Well, that round, getting an award was probably really difficult because I played a really, really good team. And like, that was a strong, a strong round. And, you know, it should be hard to get an award. But the problem is that my, my, you know, that first round, I'm getting however many ranks I got and then zero bonus ballots because it's perceived as a bad round when in fact I was playing a really good team. Then let's say that my next two rounds, I play two really bad teams. And so I win all six of those ballots. Well, now I'm getting six more points on whatever, how many ranks I got, but against bad teams. And I think that this is the failing of that system. And I'm not saying that they need to change it. I mean, at the end of the day, I had a great time. UVA, please take me back next year. But <laughs> I, I think it's it's interesting that I feel like obviously every system is partially flawed, but I, I did notice that I was kind of like, oh, well, what happens if I have six wins on this side because I played two bad teams? Then it was easy to get awards and it's easy to do well. And I, for the record, I'm not trying to suggest for a moment that any of the people that got awards got it for that reason. My guess is that it doesn't really change that much at the end of the day. Sabrina Grandi still had 30 ranks in the defense to get where she was. I don't think that that's easy to do. I certainly didn't do it myself. So more credit to her. Like she's phenomenal, obviously. And everyone that got an award is equally phenomenal. Um, but it's just an interesting system. And I, I wonder if there's a way to tweak it to maybe make it do exactly what they're saying it does. Yeah. I, I First of all, I totally agree. I full candor did not know about it going in as well. And I was standing, I helped out and have a little bit and I was standing uh, looking over uh, someone's shoulder in the tab room as they were calculating individual awards because one of my witnesses was right on the cusp. And I'm sitting there looking at the numbers and looking at our ranks and I'm like, what the hell's going on? Like, I yeah. had no idea. You know, I'm like, why are there 0.5s? Why do people have yeah. 32 ranks? Like, what on earth is this tab room doing? Uh, mm -hmm. And then, of course, Toby explained it in closing ceremonies. And then, you know, I probably could have just asked, but, you know, oh, well, I didn't want to bother anyone. But I... Uh, <laughs> I think I totally agree with almost everything you said, which is that the, the impetus behind the system is really good. Like, you know, how many times that this is not a shot at those teams whatsoever, but are we sitting at closing ceremonies at regionals and teams who have, you know, not had a, a lot of team success are winning two, three, four individual awards. And it comes from right. that, the pairing system and the way that, you know, it, it can be easier at those types of tournaments to, for those teams to win awards. Um, your points are, I think, definitely valid. I don't have a great alternative off the top of my head, but I will say like, you know, one of my kids uh, won an attorney award on one side and she was narrowly, she narrowly missed winning one on the other side. And we didn't, she didn't win that award because that other side, our plaintiff side was weaker at campaign, didn't do as well at campaign. And I think that like, that's a good thing, right? That like, she wasn't any worse on the plaintiff, but overall it sort of showed us, Hey, like that side kind of needs a little bit of, you know, kick to get going. And it, it, it does, in some ways penalize you if you're not able to raise up the people around you. And maybe that's mm. fair. Maybe it's not, but I really like, you know, we've never, I don't think gone into any detail on 
the system that Yale used a couple of years back with partial with weighted partial ballots and at their invitational. But like things like what UVA does at Gamte or what Yale did a couple of years ago with weighted partial ballots, uh, which we could do a whole separate episode on, are are like. Hey, like at an invitational, let's try this. Let's try tweaking a little bit. Yale did something similar this weekend with uh, this past weekend with having the judges say who they thought won, um, you know, irrespective of the numbers. I like when teams are like, hey, let's circumvent the sort of the standard way of doing this a little bit. Still keep the basic structure the same, but try something new, try something different. I'm guessing Yale's been or UVA has been doing this for a little while, but I'm very glad when I see teams who are like, hey, you know, it's our invitational. Let's try something a little different and see if we can get some interesting results from it. And, and I'm glad that you brought up the, the Yale tournament, what they did. Obviously, another phenomenal tournament. And uh, the fact that I, I do want to give credit for a moment. The fact that Yale hosts a tournament for 48 teams is truly astounding to me. That is just uh, as having tried to do it with 30 and felt the stress of just 30, I, I find it to be a daunting task that I am so impressed that they're able to do. Um, but yes, to, to your point, they, they did the whole, uh, basically at the bottom of the ballot, who do you think ha- performed the better case or had the better case? Um, and the judges would make a ruling. And it didn't have any point value. It was, it was just kind of an interesting, like, I wonder what the judges say. And their tab director um, published on perjuries and also sent out to all the teams that were there a you know an overview and like a review based on those results and I, I really appreciated them doing that because it was very interesting to see um, I, I know that they noted there were a couple ballots where you know the plaintiff or defense would win by over ten or fifteen points in terms of the actual raw point differential but they would the judge would say like oh I thought the other side had the stronger case mm-hmm. and that to me is is really fascinating that even in a what we would define as a larger win, like a pretty substantial win, maybe the judge for that round thought that someone else was the better team. And I don't think that it, it's indicative that we need to change the way that we score. I think that at the end of the day, it's easy to complain and, and point out flaws. It's harder to find a solution. And I don't know that the one that we have is is a, a bad solution. I think that it definitely serves its purpose well and it, it gets the job done. Um, but I mean, even take trial by combat for a second, you know, the checkmark system is a very different system of scoring competitors. And it, it's, it is fun to see different tournaments trying different styles of scoring. And, you know, with the, the, the tourn- the actual committee um, on tournaments coming into play, you know, they, they are looking into changing the way we run our tournaments and maybe it's not getting into the nitty gritty of how we score them, but, you know, it, AMTA is aware of these issues, and it, it makes me happy to see teams taking the initiative to try and and make some changes and see which ones we like and which ones we don't. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Uh, speaking of changes, uh, we, of course, had another interesting event that happened in the uh, mock trial world, which is that, you know, upon the conclusion of rounds four at uh, uh, Yale and uh, UVA and the 3,700 other Northeast tournaments that were hosted uh <laughs> You know, you had so Penn State and Ithaca and Carnegie Mellon and, and tons of other Fordham. great tournaments, Fordham, right. Uh, we had case changes that came out. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. So we had a little bit of a defense bias uh, this year. It wasn't a huge one. It was a little bit over 3%. Uh, I am a member of the analytics committee. And so it was interesting watching, you know, the results come in over the course of the fall season. Uh, and um, 
you know, Drew, I, I think the case changes, and, and you and I were talking about this a little bit, are very interesting in that, to me, I think they were, yes, clearly the committee was concerned about and even said as much, uh, the case moving even further towards the defense over the course of the season. Right, right. But you also had a couple of witnesses who were pretty massively imbalanced in terms of side calls, right? You had Remy Hollis, mm-hmm. who by the end was like 7% on the plaintiff and like 70% on the defense. And right. that's probably not ideal for a swing witness. And you had, you know, other swing witnesses who cut the other way. You had witnesses like Harper Villafana who really weren't even being called that often. Um, you know, and then you had the really interesting instance of like, you know, Dr. Hawkins, who was being called overwhelmingly in almost every single mm-hmm. trial. And mm-hmm. I feel like the case changes were targeted more to um, obviously fix the the side imbalance, but really make sure that the witnesses, especially the swings, were called a little bit more evenly and there was more diversity in witness call. Yeah, I, I really got to say, I, I'm so happy with these changes. And I, I think that we, we talked about it a little bit in just it's not that this case has been boring per se, but there's just not as much creativity with it. And and it, it it's hard when you're confined by the nature of the case that you kind of have to argue things a certain way. And it means that when we get a huge overhaul case change like this, it's exciting. Like I, I'm excited for the fact that the four rounds I just had in my last tournament are going to be astronomically different from what I'm you know facing my next couple rounds and and moving towards regionals. I think that's fun. Like I like having to make changes and and adapt. And moreover to what you said, the numbers tell a really interesting story on that they in this mid-year case balance memo. And and it's that like there are clearly certain witnesses that just always get called Hawkins and Kozak to a certain extent Alex Grace and and there are certain witnesses that just rarely do. And Obviously, that happens always, but when you're able to really start to to move that towards the center and get more of those witnesses close to around that 50% mark, it's fun because then you can't get away with not preparing yourself for something. I mean, obviously, you should have every witness prepared, but frankly, like, I know my team was definitely, like, of the belief that Hawkins is going to get called every trial. Kozak is going to get called every trial. If I'm the person that crosses Hawkins... I don't worry a ton about learning any of the plaintiff swing crosses because I'm pretty sure I'm going to just cross Hawkins every time. And I think that what they've done a really great job of is now I'm not so sure. Now there's not a single witness where I'm like, wow, you can't survive without this witness. And there's also not a lot of witnesses where I'm like, oh, there's there's nothing good that witness has to say. No way they would call them. And it makes it fun because it means that everyone's got to prep everything. And luckily we're at a point in the season where I would hope that people are not overwhelmed by that and people are excited that they may have to cross you know may go one trial crossing hawkins next trial crossing Viafana, and then maybe crossing cooper later you know i mean we have really really different witnesses in this case and getting to to try more new things is always fun um and especially when we're we're talking about the the theories just in general i love the fact that we now have you know another witness that can talk about training that there's maybe a new way for the plaintiff to to go about attacking um Danny Kozak outside of just you didn't train this chimpanzee properly um i think that that's fun like i think that it's it's cool to give the plaintiff a little more choices of what to do and similarly i think that the defense while the case may have initially came out and people thought it was plaintiff sided cuz we always do 
clearly the defense was getting something right and and clearly the defense was too strong and you know it'll probably still be too strong come regionals <laughs> just knowing AMTA. yeah i i do have to commend the the case committee i uh i think these changes were creative i think more than anything mm-hmm. else that sure anyone can you know blow up a case mid-season but first of all Yes, there was a defense bias in the fall, but a 3% defense bias is pretty minimal, all things considered. I, you know, I talk sometimes about the law school world on here, and I competed in competitions where packets were two-thirds, one-thirds biased in a particular you know, direction because you had people writing them who, if I'm being blunt, had no idea what they were doing and had never dealt with something like understanding defense bias in your criminal case or things like that. And so these changes, I feel like, moved the case in the right direction. Uh, I was talking to, I won't say who, but I was talking to a member of the case committee about this recently. And that individual was saying that, for example, with the change about uh, if you don't call Hawkins, that it weakens McCoy. That's such a creative change in that you don't want to weaken Hawkins because the plaintiff, they're trying to strengthen the plaintiff. But Mm -hmm. you do want to encourage diversity of witness calls. And so maybe on the plaintiff's end, you sit there and think, well, we love Dr. Hawkins and Hawkins is a great point scorer, but we can really screw up the defense if we don't call Hawkins because then maybe they're planning on calling McCoy and now they can't or now they shouldn't. It it just makes people think a little bit more. And I feel like these changes, they're smart, right? They make people think just a little bit more about how they want to approach things, how they want to uh, maybe change what they're trying to do, keep the core of what they're trying to do, but... Uh, tweak their approaches, tweak their witness calls. And, and at the end of the day, that's the goal of case changes. It's not to blow everything up. It's not to say that everything you thought you knew is is different, but to say, okay, what are the problems with this case? How can we make witness calls more diverse? How can we make sure it's as balanced as possible? And obviously we'll see how the results of them are, but I think we both feel like the case committee did a really nice job of of making tweaks as needed. Um, the last thing that I think we wanted to discuss is uh, there was recently a survey that went out uh, regarding AMTA hosting and sort of the the hosting process and the ter- the tournament process as a whole. Uh, and there was just a letter that was uh, sent out on behalf of AMTA with the results of that survey. I didn't really deal with tournament structure, but a lot of it dealt with uh, people who choose uh, to host for AMTA and trying to figure out why teams who host choose to host, why teams who don't host, you know, choose not to host and things like that. And I thought it, there were some really interesting results, especially as it pertains to uh, judge recruitment playing a role in that. Uh, Drew, I know you've gotten a chance to look through it. Where where are you feeling, you know, in terms of your thoughts on the survey results and what AMTA sent out? Yeah, I'm really, really pleased that that they sent out the the report. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm glad that this this committee exists. They they focus a lot on what I have spoken multiple times about as being what I think is the biggest problem, which is just judging. And they they mentioned they're going to make the judging committee, which I'm excited about. I think it will get more hosts. And I think that the numbers here are really interesting. the The fact that it's it's so consistent across the board that people, you know, want AMTA to help with judge recruitment. And and it's interesting to me that even the the tournaments that have been hosting, their biggest thing of like what would make us want to continue, 62% said if AMTA helped with judge recruitment. I mean, to me, 
obviously the other two, that was the, the primary reason was that they wanted help. But even schools that have been hosting, they want help there. That is the largest obstacle. And if AMTA can help them out in that capacity, it, it I think, solves a lot of the problems. I think that at the end of the day, the, the thing that holds so many people back is that we have such high standards of what we want regionals and orcs to be. And we want to make sure that they are they are judged at the highest possible quality with the most possible judges we can get. And frankly, it's scary and intimidating to have to try to do that and think that, wow, if I don't get enough judges or if I get the, you know, a bad judge, it could mean someone's season is over. That's, that's intimidating. Yeah. I was really interested and intrigued by the, the fact that the number one result was judge recruitment. Uh, Cause I'll be totally honest for me, it's money. You know, <laughs> if AMTA was like, you got to have, uh, you know, we will triple your stipend if you can get four judges and have, like, I'll go out and, you know, get those judges. Cause I, as a smaller school and a smaller program, like I want every dime that AMTA will give me to host. Uh, and there were still like the number two result by a pretty healthy margin was, you know, AMTA giving hosts more money. Uh, but I, I think it points to exactly what you were saying, which is that yes, hosting for AMTA, there's a lot of things that they take care of. They send the reps, they send the trophies, they, you know, they take care of the guts of the tournament. But even as someone who, you know, our program doesn't have a ton of difficulty recruiting judges and getting judges for tournaments, it is still hard. It is tedious. It is time consuming. You want to, you know, it, there is definitely a fear of like making a mistake, inviting a judge who's going to do weird things and, and upset people. Uh, I know in the past, AMTA has been very concerned about getting involved in this arena because of how hard it would be to actively maintain relationships with hundreds of thousands of judges across the country. Uh, but the fact that there is this specific committee this year that's dedicated to that, uh, and it, I believe it's led by Andy Hogan from Cincinnati, who's fantastic. Uh, I think, like, I can't say enough, like, I think if AMTA can address this and can make that path easier for people so that we don't run into the great Syracuse judges debacle of 2010, like we talked about with Adam, <laughs> uh, it could really open the door for hosts all across the country. Uh, and so I certainly, and not that AMTA needs this encouragement, but I would encourage them based on the survey to say, okay, let's dedicate even more resources to this. And, you know, I know money is always tight, but if we can find a way financially to put, you know, put some resources behind this project and build a system where it's easier uh, for people to do these things. And I know from talking to Will that some of that is in the works. Uh, I think that could be a huge asset for the organization going forward. Yeah, I, mean, I can't agree enough. I did want to say the one other thing that was interesting to me about this this report was the competitive advantage aspect, the, the aspect of would it make you more likely to host if you were guaranteed a bid to orcs? And uh, it's interesting because I understand the desire to to want to want to have more hosts, and and we wanted to figure out what exactly that source was. But I think it's commendable that maybe fifty percent to even in some cases less than fifty percent said that they wanted a competitive advantage. I mean, at the end of the day who doesn't want to move on to orcs? Like I feel like every program would want to move on to orcs and it's really commendable 
that people are like, no, like you need to earn it. Like what makes Orc special, what makes National special is that teams had to work to get there. And would do I believe that if you said like if you run a regionals, you automatically bid to Orcs, would that get more hosts? In a heartbeat. Overnight they would have ten more hosts at least. But like are we getting hosts for the right reasons? No. And the other thing about it, like, if those teams were held back for other reasons, whether it was not enough money, whether it was they weren't confident about the judges they're going to get, will it be a good tournament? Like, are we are we really supporting teams in the right way? Like, is having a, a tournament that is poorly run, that is not judged well, is that really important to us? Like, in my opinion, no. Like, I think that the, the thing I like about the help with recruiting judges that, as you said, you know, amped to doing it will hopefully not only streamline the process, but I, I envision it as a way to weed out bad judges. If someone's a bad judge, if we can, if you know, if you get them judging two or three rounds and all of the teams are like, that person was not helpful, they were not a good judge, blacklist them, and AMTA can have a, like, do not let this person judge list. I mean, I don't know the word at that point yet, but, like, man, that would be great. Like, I think that would really put us on the road to, you know, making the 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 mock trial experience something where when you get judged it doesn't feel really shitty half the time i think that it's something really sad that our activity goes through and if we can hopefully encourage better judging that's awesome and that makes the whole experience better so we don't need a competitive advantage in my opinion yeah and and it's so interesting because it's it's a it's such a difference between like like right now what people commonly refer to as the world cup bid was recently added for hosting mm-hmm. nationals and that's such a different issue right that like hosting nationals is such an right. undertaking and you have to it's not like you get this bid automatically by just hosting you have to prove that you have a team worthy of getting through to orcs on an right. earned bid not even an open bid in order to get that uh and and so right. it's, a, it's a very different animal and, and i really agree with you that like just hosting regionals shouldn't entitle you to uh, a bid to orcs. And, and at the end of the day, to be totally honest, it is not really beneficial to your program to compete at orcs mm-hmm. if you didn't earn your spot there. Uh, yes, you'll get the opportunity to go against really great teams, but the process, as we talked about a fair, at length in a recent episode, of actually building the infrastructure to climb your way and sort of, you know, the blood, sweat, and tears that comes with getting to orcs you know, through an earned bid or an open bid for the first time is a massive monumental moment in a program's history. Certainly was for us and us, I'm sure it was for you guys. And so, uh, you know, I think keeping the authenticity of that in place is really important. So we've got a really interesting uh, rest of the show coming up. Uh, thankfully, as I'm sure you all are glad of, it's not just going to be Drew and I, you know, yakking at you for an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation coming up with two individuals connected to Stanford mock trial, their head coach, Tom Shear, and their president and, uh, all American Jack Siegenthaler. We're really looking forward to talking to them, digging into some West coast mock trial and just learning a little bit more about Stanford and, and what it is they do over there on the West Coast that has led to so much success. So thanks so much for listening, and after the break, we're going to talk to Tom Sheeler and Jack
Today on the podcast, we are thrilled to be joined by two fantastic guests, both who belong to Stanford Mock Trial. Uh, we're chatting, first of all, with Tom Shear. Tom is a former high school and college competitor. He competed at Stanford. He was the head coach of Menlo Mock Trial for 10 years, which was one of the most successful uh, high school programs in the country. Uh, he's currently the head coach at Stanford Mock Trial, and he also works with Golden State Mock Trial, which is the governing body for California Mock Trial. And then uh, when he's not uh, doing mock trial in all of his free time, I'm sure, uh, he is the COO and acting CEO of Beyond Type 1, which is an organization founded in 2015 dedicated to educating the public about living with type 1 diabetes and supporting individuals who live with type 1 diabetes. Tom, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And our other guest is, like I said, also a Stanford mock trial, and that's Jack Siegenthaler. Jack is a senior. He's the current president of Stanford mock trial. Uh, Jack is an All-American. He was an All-American in 2017 in Los Angeles. And uh, Stanford, of course, as many of you are aware, I'm sure, has finished top 10 at nationals the last two years. They were 10th in 2017 and actually third in 2018. Uh, and then Jack placed third at the recent first trial by combat and actually was just announced to be returning to the field for the 2019 trial by combat. I had the pleasure actually of judging Jack at trial by combat. He was fantastic. And we're really thrilled to be joined uh, by him as well. So Jack, thanks for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. So Tom, I want to start with you. You've got a, a fairly uh, lengthy and interesting background in, in mock trial going all the way back to when you competed in high school. So uh, as you know, listeners know, we like to talk about origin stories. So, so what's yours? How did you get involved in mock trial? Yeah, I so I competed in Riverside County in California, um, and I it was a class at my high school, and I was interested in it at the time. I was really interested in law, and I tried out. I registered for this class and then tried out for the team, and I was a relatively insecure and lanky gay fifteen year old who was trying out in this public speaking role. And it was the first thing that I'd ever really done from an acting lens or a public speaking lens, and fell in love with it. I um, and I wound up witnessing and then attorneying, and I loved competing at the high school level. And then I got to Stanford and I competed at Stanford, and. I both witnessed and attorneyed for them for a year. And then um, my second year at Stanford, uh, a bunch of issues sort of came up all at once. And I decided I no longer really wanted to compete, but I wanted to start coaching. So I started coaching Menlo while I was at Stanford and, and was there for 10 years. And a couple of years ago, started with Stanford as well. But my my like real original origin story is, is starting as a 15-year-old in high school and not knowing what I was doing or what the law was or what the activity even really was. And I, my high school team had no history of even really making the playoffs in Riverside. The elite eight is what it was called and sort of quarterfinals round. And, and we did by the time I left and I'm, I'm still proud of that fact, but <laughs> um, we, you know, I, I wasn't sure that I was going to keep doing it when I went to college and then sort of fell in love with it at the, at the collegiate level fast forward and i've i've really stayed involved it's a it's a huge part of who i am these days as sort of cheesy as that sounds but i think everybody that's involved with ampta long term or mock trial long term it becomes a piece of who you are and you know interestingly enough when we were talking about this just a moment ago you know i think you're maybe I don't know what the right word is, but a lot of people who are involved with AMTA, who coach AMTA, are practicing attorneys. And of course, you're not. You're in a very different line of work. So uh, 
you know, how does that work in terms of you, you know, not being a practicing attorney and, and, you know, just out of curiosity, how did you get involved with the work that you do now? Yeah. In terms of not being a practicing attorney, look, I I think that this is a public speaking activity about the law, not a legal activity necessarily about public speaking. And I I use good friends who are lawyers constantly and we bring folks in. I, um, I guess I like to think it's it's not a requirement, and I, I think that's been shown a, a good handful of times at the high school and the collegiate level um, and occasionally at the law school level even. So for me, I, I guess I just don't think it's that big of a deal. I, I love it. In particular, at the high school level, I love the mentorship of it and, and being able to work with, you know, they start as kids and they graduate really not as kids. So I, I, I loved getting a chance to work with them and really develop sort of public speaking skills and self-confidence. And I, I didn't find myself needing to be a lawyer to necessarily do that. Um, when I first started coaching at Menlo, I strictly did presentation coaching. So all that I worked on was performance and presentation, mostly with attorneys and not even witnesses. But it's been over a decade now. And these days I do a lot more than that. But that's really where I started and then learned. And I've gotten, you know, I've had the opportunity to learn under a, a number of really incredible lawyers about the law and the evidence code. And I feel entirely comfortable teaching evidence these days. Um, in terms of professionally, I used to work in the fashion industry and then I moved to the tech industry. And one day I got what I describe as a fateful and crazy call about a nonprofit that was being started in the diabetes space that Nick Jonas was founding along with a handful of other really remarkable folks and I'd been at my tech job for a good number of years and was looking for something new. And I did not think that a nonprofit job in the diabetes space was going to be that. Um, <laughs> and I went and the original premise was that I was going to be there for a couple of months and get them set up and sort of operationalize what was happening. And three months in, I was so honored that the board asked me to stay. And I, I asked them if I could stay and fast forward three years down the road and, and we're doing some really incredible work. So I love it. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but I joke around that with my experience in mock trial, I, uh, I am what is the equivalent of in-house counsel. Thankfully, we have great outside counsel. Um, but I, um, I, I, love, I love my job. I love what I'm doing. And it, it's very, very different. And it's challenging. And it's a path that I did not see myself taking. But we, we do really important work. That's really interesting. I appreciate you giving us a little insight into that. Um, so Jack, uh, similar question for you. Obviously, you've been competing for a few years now at Stanford and, and have had a tremendous amount of success in, in just those couple of years. So how did mock trial first come to be for you? Uh, yeah, so I've been doing it for, <laughs> this is my 10th year doing it, uh, which is pretty crazy. Um, I started actually in middle school. Uh, Connecticut had a middle school um, mock trial program. I don't know how common that is, but um, yeah, I started in seventh grade, so I guess when I was 12 or 13. Um, and then did in high school, uh, and then was lucky enough to be on the team here. And, uh, I've done it all four years here. Um, so it's been maybe the, uh, longest continuous activity I've been a part of for my whole life. So Jack, you're obviously a very, very well decorated competitor. And, you know, you, as Ben mentioned earlier, you know, all American, you were at trial by combat and got third, I'm curious, as someone that's been doing it, as you said, for 10 years, what do you think is the most proud moment you've had in mock trial? Is there a certain one that you're like, yeah, that was just the moment? 
I'd say either. Um, last year when we got third in nationals, um, that was sort of a big thing for the team um, and for, for, for this program uh, in a way that was really meaningful to the folks who were to the, the president who was graduating and um, Ryan, Ryan Bamier. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I mean, that was, that was pretty special. Um, so I think that, uh, we also won my high school States when I was a senior in high school and that was, that was, um, pretty big. So I, either of those. Also on the note of trial by combat, something that I think is kind of fun, uh, as someone that's been doing mock trial for as long as you had, you know, at trial by combat, you have to be both a witness and an attorney. My understanding is that for the most part, you've been an attorney, but have you dabbled at all in witnessing? And what do you think about uh, the difference between attorney and witnessing? Obviously, there are very different roles, but do you have a preference, one or the other? And are there intricacies of them that you like or dislike? Um, I, I love witnessing. I got to witness a couple times my freshman year. Um, it was dope to do it at Drive by Combat. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I haven't done it a whole lot in my college career. Um yeah, I, I mean, I think there are sort of applicable skills on either sides. Uh, uh, Tom was the other day encouraging the witnesses on the team to sort of learn uh, the rules of evidence and sort of have a sense of the direction of examinations as an attorney would, um, because, you know, ask Tom, but I, I, I think that there's, there's, a, there's sort of a, a, re- a really um, big value add if you're a witness who, who um, sort of understands both sides of the, uh, of, of the coin. Um, so I, and I think you're sort of employing the same skills, particularly when you're responsive on cross, um, or responsive to objections, you know, you're sort of keeping in mind, um, uh, you know, theory and, and, you know, whether what you're saying is evidentiary, evidentiarily viable. Um, uh, so, you know, there's sort of that, that piece of, of, um, I think similarity between the two and then, uh, I don't know. It's dope to to act and take on a character. Uh, I did a bunch of theater in high school, um, so really love witnessing. And and Jack, I mentioned this in your introduction, but you know, so I was I judged you round one in trial by combat against Chris Grant from Northwood, and obviously, you know, I'm not trying to get into individual details of any specific round, but that was one of the most fun rounds I've ever had as as a mock trial judge because. I mean, you and Chris, I mean, all Americans and you guys, you're both unbelievably good and your styles are so different, like just like really, really different. And it was a lot of fun. And I, I don't know if I have a specific question as much as I'm just curious, uh, you know, your thoughts on uh, that format is so interesting when you get to go one on one with people. And sometimes you get rounds like that where you compete against, you know, equally decorated competitors, but who do things, you know, very, very differently from from how you would in that format. And it was, you know, I had a blast judging that round. Yeah. I mean, that weekend was one of the most fun weekends I've ever had uh, of mock trial. Um, you know, I, I had no earthly idea what to expect going in. Um, I, I, I mean, Tom and I had a schedule. Uh, we'd, ne- we'd never done a full drill, I guess. Uh, so I, you know, we had a sense of the prep, um, but you get the case and, you know, 22 hours, it's, it's go time. 22 hours later, it's go time. Um, so I, I, it's just really fun, um, to sort of put, put, to, put, like test yourself and put something together, um, in a, in a crunch like that. Um, and then, you know, the competitors there were so, so fantastic across the board. Like everybody I saw, um, was among 
the best folks I'd ever seen in this activity. Um, so, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I was lucky to be there. It was, it was dank. So just jumping off of kind of that, that last question that, that Ben had, you know, obviously between Jack and between Chris, they're very different styles. And something that's talked about a lot in the mock trial community is the difference in style on the West Coast, in the Midwest, in the South, in the Northeast. And I'm wondering, well, we, let's start with Tom since we haven't heard from him in a while, but we'll get to Jack too. What do you guys think are the stylistic differences? Do you think that there's something different about the way you guys are doing West Coast mock trial? Obviously, you know, you've gotten to see people at trial by combat. You see people at nationals. Do you think that there's a, a large difference there? And if so, what is it? So I, I think good mock is good mock. And I, I think it needs to be able to exist outside of a good, uh, of sort of any region of the country. And that's harder said than done. Um, but there are some really amazing examples. UCLA's incredible two-year run back in the, you know, early 2000s where they didn't lose a trial. If I remember the stat right, anywhere in the country for a period of two years, they were never swept. I think they had a handful of splits and they won the national title both years. And that's North and South and West and Northeast and the Midwest. And that kind of thing is just incredible. Good mock is good mock. That said, yeah, there's stylistic differences. I think the West Coast, certainly at the high level, is known for you know, big over-the-top witnessing, dramatic witnessing, um, a certain degree of polish that is, uh, you know, is picked up on. And and sometimes that polish, depending on where you're performing, is perceived as even scriptedness. Uh, Sometimes even when it's not actually scripted, it's just the way that we train out here. And, And, you know, UCLA did a really good job making that a thing for a long time and sort of carrying that mantle. But Bernstein changed that. I I mean, what Justin did at UCI for a period of years was, I I think, lent both the idea of good mock is good mock everywhere and, hey, the way that we're doing it down here in Irvine right now is big and dramatic and polished and fun. And I I buy into that. And, you know, Justin and I are good friends, but I think we share that opinion and, and, um, for me, when I'm coaching, I, I do think about it, and we make micro changes depending on where we're competing, but not macro ones. I I I don't think that should be necessary if you're if you're doing things right. So, Jack, what about you? Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I tend to think this issue is overblown a little, um, and that that should be taken with a grain of salt, just because you know I think the majority of our competitions happen out here. Um, I don't have a lot of experience competing on the East coast. Um, so, or, or elsewhere. So, you know, maybe there's some, some myopia there. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with Tom that there are ways to do this well. Um, and those kind of work in all time zones. Very fair. I'll follow up with this then for both of you. Um, and this time, why don't we start with Jack? So I, I do think that I have noticed that, there's a very there may not even necessarily be a difference in what is good, but there is sometimes a difference in what judges want and what they expect. And I I'm curious, you know, obviously Nationals this year was in the Midwest. This year it's gonna be in Philly, and assuming Stanford continues their historic strength, you know, if you guys are going back to Philly, do you think you're gonna prepare any differently than you would if you're going to Minneapolis? Do you prepare differently than when you're going to a tournament in California? You know, is is there ever a a logic to changing up 
anything. And obviously, as you said, good mock is good mock. You know, it's not like you're going to intentionally not be polished or something. But do you ever make a decision based on the region that you're going to be competing in, I guess? Not really. Right, Tom? I mean, maybe you can speak to that a little more. <laughs> not, not really. Yeah. Um, no, I think I... So it's interesting. Like, I think everybody goes to orcs wanting to be polished and, and pretty with whatever they're doing at orcs. And orcs can be such a bloodbath. And the tension is so high, you just want things clean. Um, but I think with the Santa Monica orcs over the last few years, I, I, there's sort of a standard to it that it's got to be polished out. And, and if anything... I think there were probably some decisions in the last two years where I would have loved to have tried to shake something up in that final period of time and erred on the side of caution because polish is such an expectation for that scoring pool. Hmm. Um, I, I will say this, though. I mean, we called Sam Mitchell on eight-day notice or whatever last year, so I was clearly willing to shake it up some. Um, I I think... We made micro changes for Minneapolis, knowing, uh, you know, we we did a couple of sort of interviews with folks who have scored the high school levels there and and were lawyers there about just sort of decorum and the way that people talk to witnesses and judges and juries there and see if there was anything that we could glean. And, and so I would say there were a, a handful of really small changes we made. Um I don't think those are necessarily round determinant. I think they just put a scorer, if they're a practicing lawyer in that region, a little at ease. Like they, you don't feel like they're so out of place, but nothing, nothing major. And I know I don't think we'll change things for Philly. I, I mean, we kind of let Jack do Philly for trial by combat <laughs> as Jack. So <laughs> it seemed to work out all right. I, uh, I don't want to rock the boat too much. Well, and that, and that makes sense. I think. And, 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 I also I really agree with Jack's point like I there are some stylistic differences but I, I think it's one of those like things where people it's a point to talk about right people like to talk about the difference between the east coast and the west coast and you have certain powers on each on each coast but I think there's a sort of a standard set of things that that are going to work um one of my questions and, and I guess I'll follow up with, with Tom is geography related though so we want to get into invitationals in just a minute but but first of all I mean you guys being Stanford, being you know a top program in Amtel, you've only traveled to a couple tournaments this fall, and I imagine part of that is that geographically it's just tougher. I mean, for you, there just aren't the cluster. I mean, and Drew and I compete in the Northeast, and you know, from October to December, if you throw a rock, you'll hit a tournament. Uh, and with you guys, it's it's not necessarily that way. There are some great you know West Coast programs that host tournaments, but geographically, I think it's tougher to get places. So, how do you guys? get the amount of feedback that you feel like you might need in the fall. Um, and even in the, in the early wind, you know, in the late winter, early spring, given the fact that, you know, West coast, there just aren't the same number of tournaments, invitationals to attend before you get into AMTA tournament. Yeah. So I look, I think before I can even answer this question, I think it's really important to acknowledge the quantity of teams who don't have the funding to go to any of these tournaments, right? They they don't have the funding or the capacity or uh, for whatever reason, they can't go uh, in some instances. And, and you two have talked about this before. They don't have the invites. Um, I, I think Stanford's luckily fortunate enough to be able to go sort of where we want to go. And Jack can talk more about that. Um, I, I think for us, I look at schedules that some of the Northeast teams do and it's just a lot of tournaments and that's, it's really hard to iterate quickly in that environment. 
and actually be able to internalize all the notes and the feedback and, and actually make meaningful changes. So I, I do think some of it's geographic. I think if we had our share of tournaments the way that it, you know, teams in New York do, and I, I look at all the presence of NYU across the whole uh, sort of, you know, Eastern seaboard and, and even clustered in and around the city, and we just don't have those options. That said, I do feel like we get the experience that we need in order to make meaningful changes. Um, and that's what's most important for me is that, look, we get in there, we prep something. We're also on quarters. We start way later. So, you know, we the, the season itself isn't as long in the fall. But what matters to me is that we get in a couple of good, solid, polished out runs and are able to then iterate meaningfully and make real changes. I, I don't think you need that quantity of invites necessarily to get there. But I will say, I, I don't know that I would feel that way if I was coaching where um, there was a massive quantity of invitationals. I, I will add though, even Menlo, when I coached for Menlo, had a little bit of a reputation for not doing one-off scrimmages, which are way more common at the high school level. We did a handful of big tournaments and that's because I really believe in sort of going to something, coming back and and putting the walls back up and rebuilding and then going back out again and trying something new rather than sort of playing whack-a-mole with theory. <laughs> that's... That's a really good way to describe what I think, including my program, a lot of East Coast programs do, <laughs> where you just, you're on the road nonstop. And that's a really, that's really interesting. Like, I, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone express it that way, but I think that there's, there's some merit to that. Uh, so getting a little bit more specific, and Jack, I'll, I'll turn to you for this question real quick, since you're the person who's been on the ground competing. Um, one of the, I mean, you guys obviously at Stanford have had a, a tremendous amount of success, Drew and I, of course, are tucked over in our little pocket of, of the East Coast, and, and uh, we don't, we very, very rarely compete against teams on the West Coast. So I'm curious uh, what you've seen so far this fall. There are the big names that everyone talks about, right? The teams that are strong and, and, and have had a lot of success. You guys, of course, are one of those teams you've had success in the past, and you've had success at Invitationals this year. But what are you seeing, um, and, and as Drew and I always say to people, you know, we're not trying to call out individual competitors in, in any uncomfortable way, but what are you seeing so far this year in terms of teams that you guys are hitting? And 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 if you guys can break down a little bit of who are the West Coast teams that maybe our East Coast listeners and your East Coast podcast hosts should know more about? Frankly, it's considering we've only gone to two tournaments, um, I, I don't really have a good sense of sort of I've never had a particularly good sense of who's a great West Coast power or not. Um, you know, I, there are a lot of good teams that compete really well out here. We faced a, a number of teams that could be viable competitors down the line. Um, I, 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 w I wish I had a better answer to this, but I, I just, I, I feel like I don't have the sort of know-how or the, 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 the breadth of knowledge, particularly this year to, to answer it well. And and that's totally fair. Um Tom, do you feel like you have any better sense? Or do you kind of agree with Jack that you guys are still, you know, more focusing, I guess, on you guys and figuring out, you know, not concerned as much about, uh, you know, other programs? I, I mean, look, we got to get concerned at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I echo Jack, though. I, I also think it's unpredictable. I think it's really early. The, the other thing I'll add here is, is I think it's easy to think about the West Coast in this weird sort of oh, well, we're all out here on the West Coast, but but look, UCSD hosts a tournament there. Irvine was there. There were a handful of teams that I expect to be very good this year, Irvine being a great example of this. 
Irvine wasn't at Davis. They weren't at the Berkeley tournament. I wasn't, we weren't at San Diego. San Diego is a 10 hour drive for us. It's an hour and a half, two hour flight, right. you know? And, and I mean, we, we talk about sort of the East coast in general, but I don't think you're seeing, and you see a little bit of it, but you're not seeing teams in New York making the trip down to sort of South Carolina, which is really what we're talking about here. Yeah, and so I, I, you know, I think I, it's a little hard to know at this point. Um, I also think this case is really peculiar in the way it's been evolving. I think people came out with some real basic stuff that was expected and now that's evolving. And as that evolves, I think we'll get a better sense of who real powers are. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that I have anything outside of what you could predict based on prior results that I've seen. I will say there are a handful of programs that got some really impressive high school muckers out of California, including a community college in LA that got a former gladiator champion, as well as a handful of gladiator honorable mentions, or at least another one. And those things get unpredictable really fast. And so I, you know, I think certainly in California where there's such remarkable high school talent, sort of year in, year out, sometimes it's hard to know where that talent's going to wind up or where they went to college and if they chose to do mock. And that can change a program from a team that was a regional to orcs barely contender to an easy belongs in orcs as suddenly a national contender. And I, I think that's sort of been shown time and again on the West Coast. Tom, something that you just mentioned that I'm, I'm really glad you brought up because it's something that Ben and I have talked about a couple times on the podcast is that this case specifically, it – until the case changes just come out, and we'll get to those in a second, but prior to the case changes, it was relatively confining in that to a certain extent, the, the plaintiff is attacking the, the fact that the training wasn't proper, the defense is attacking, the rules aren't followed, and it's, it's a little bit predictable. And when you have last year's case, whether it's uh, the Nationals case or just the Hendricks case, in both cases, there are tons of different defense theories you can go with. To a certain extent, the prosecution is a little bit always predictable, but defense, you can have fun with it. You can do something different. And there isn't I, – I don't think I've seen as much of that this year. And to your point about this case being confining, I, I just want to know, like, do you guys think that the West Coast has noticed that as well? Do you feel like there's a lot of the same ingenuity that you you get with, you know, the Hendricks case last year? Have you guys noticed any of that? Um, and just, yeah, has the West Coast seen anything different? Uh, I mean, I, I'll, I'll let Jack answer on this too. I don't think, I, I think we saw a lot of sort of as expected and I, I, the Hendricks case was a lot of fun and it was <laughs> Whack. unpredictable and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like I just I think about the quantity of explanations for bomb, knife, poison, whatever, what yeah. frying pan, whatever the emoji list was. <laughs> yeah, and and well, exactly. And boy, did we hear some theories about some stuff that I wouldn't talk about on this podcast. <laughs> and and you know, like in rounds, even all in rounds. Yeah. And we watched his scores <laughs> had to wrestle with some really gruesome explanations. And <laughs> we also watched his, you know, our version of Carrie Bell Leone's gay sex life was like blasted in front of the jury. And Alex Millard, who played Carrie Bell Leone for us, luckily was, um, 
more than willing to play that and do it up and have some fun with it. But uh, that case was crazy and unpredictable. And I feel like every time we walked into a round, you didn't know what was going to come out of the other team's mouth. Oh, for sure. I have not, I haven't experienced that this year. And I think that'll change. I think as the season goes on and case changes and whatnot, there will be more variance. Um, inevitably somewhat though i think the baseline isn't as crazy as hendrix was so jack do, do, what, what are your thoughts here uh yeah um i, I sort of echo what tom says i, I think the the um the summary judgment sort, sort of constrains you right because the case is who's more at fault for the attack um so your, your option your option sets certainly not as wide a lot of the theories we've seen are sort of as expected um and, and I'm guessing what's being, you know, um, put out all around the country. Uh, so yeah, it takes, it takes, it takes teams really digging in to, to get creative with this guy. Yeah, it, it really does. It's, I'm hoping that these case changes are going to hopefully throw a wrench into things and get us something more interesting going on. It's definitely a fun case, but, uh, as you guys said, there's no gun knife bomb that we can play around with. Um, so Stanford mock trial has, you know, absolutely become a total powerhouse on the West coast at this point. I mean, as we've said before, you know, got third at nationals last year, just this invitational season at the two tournaments you guys have been to both have had winning records, six and two and five and three at average American, which is hosted by Cal Berkeley. And then at UC Davis's Cowtown. You went eight and zero and seven and one. So clearly, something in the water at Stanford is is working out. And without going into your case there, obviously, what do you guys think is going right? What are you guys doing differently? Whether it's preparation, whether it's uh, just the right people, uh, you guys obviously have a fantastic coach that we have with us. What do you guys think it is though? And uh, let's start with Jack. You know, what do you guys think you're doing differently? Uh, yeah, um, I wouldn't say differently so much as um you know i tom can speak more of this i don't really know this story but there's some some sort of weird stuff that happened in the program before i came um and i think the the program was uh sort of on the up when i when i uh when i got here i count myself lucky um that i sort of came in at a time when there was uh sort of an investment in in the team um and then you know we've sort of we we've taken a direction over the last four years that said um you know, we're, we're going to focus on a, how to build a culture around a program. Um, so how, how do you get people who are part of this activity, excited and invested in this activity? And, you know, as I'm sure y'all know, that's not a given. Um, you're asking people for a lot of time, um, to do something that some of them have never done before. Uh, and, you know, you're saying, you know, and, 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 you know, sort of program dependent, you know, that the, 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 the the results don't always turn out as you want them to, 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 um, so, you know, we've sort of sought to, I, th- I think over the years, build more of a culture and a program. Um, and I think there's been inertia to that. That's sort of led us to this year. Uh, I, I just love the folks up and down the program. And then too, you know, you, you, uh, you sort of aggregate people who, um, both get better over time. And as the program gets better, um, you know, you're able to recruit strong, recruit in a more effective way. You know, it's, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice carrot to say, you know, we got third at nationals last year. Um, so I, I, yeah, like, like a, I count myself really lucky, um, to have been and to be a part of this team. Uh, 
and B, um, it takes sort of concerted investment up and down. And I credit, um, I credit Tom, I credit, um, coach, um, my freshman, uh, freshman year, Eric. Um, and yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'd say there's sort of, I, there's been a, a, a good inertia about this team over the last four years. Yeah, I'll, I'll add, I think we, I think it builds on itself, you know, um, good mock breeds more good mock and you get more people that can train other people and you can just sort of build from there. Uh, for us this fall in particular, I, we got a really, really amazing freshman class, um, that includes a, a good number of people who've never done mock, but are, are really talented and I'm, I'm excited about and, and a good number of people who had done mock and we were excited about and was a really competitive tryout. Um, I, I also think we have a board that like an, an e-board that's really invested and we've had that the last few years, but I think again, it sort of builds on itself. You know, I, I mean, we also only graduated one person from the team last year. Like I, we returned a lot of strength and, um, I've, I've rested because a chunk of them have been abroad, uh, a bunch of them this fall, actually. Um, so they've, they've it's not sort of been a full piece of the equation yet, but I'm, I'm excited for what we're going to do with it. I, I also, like, I'll just add, I, I think those good early fall results, they're nice and all, but I don't think they're the focus for most coaches that are out there. Like we're not going, I'm really happy with the results. Don't get me wrong. I'll take eight, no, and seven and one in an invitational any day of the week. <laughs> but what I care a lot more about is that we're developing off of that. So I, I don't know. I had a lot of conversations with our coaches and sort of our other coaches about it and wanting to make sure that we actually didn't end up resting on laurels because of those things. Um, and for us, we we wanted to get out there and in part train some of this new younger talent. And I'm just so happy that they're really invested and that there's good student leadership of that. I, I think we're we're a team that's a family, and I know that's something that resonates with a lot of programs out there. Very fair. No, I think that you know, as you cited, early invitationals aren't necessarily always the most indicative of future success, but it definitely is always a, a good feeling to have. Um, but one of the reasons why they're not a great indicator is because there are case changes and there are case changes that we just all got just about a, a week or so ago. Um, and I, I want to, you know, talk broadly, obviously, like teams are figuring out new case theories or if they're going to change or if not. But I just kind of want to talk to both of you about you know, your thoughts on the case changes. Um, just for starters, do you have a favorite maybe? Um, is there something that you think you're really happy that they changed, maybe not so happy that they changed. Um, just, yeah, what are your general thoughts? And Tom, we can start with you. Yeah. Um, also, I'm realizing I, I want to add to the last question. I think trial by combat changed the way Jack and I approach mock. Like, like full stop. I think it meant that we were able to look at this case early on. And to be honest, within like 24 hours of the two of us reading it, had ideas and were able to have real conversation and held other teammates to similar standards. Like it just sort of removed all the baggage of this needs to be some long, slow process. We'd, we'd done it in 22 hours before. Why couldn't we do it again? Um, and I'm sure Jack can weigh in on that too. But just in thinking about it, I do think TBC did change how I approach a new case for what it's worth. Um, in terms of case changes, well, my favorite case change involves um, Cooper in the orange sweatshirt and then the orange cat. I just I just think that's ridiculous and amazing. Um yeah. Um, I, as far as things I like, things I hate, I don't know. I think there's a lot of um, 
this speaks to how I approach mock, I think. I think people get bogged down in being like angry about something or happy about something or not believing something. And I just don't view it as that productive. I, I think I look at a case and the case is the case. It's there. It, it's a backdrop for us to do fun things with. So I tend to not get that bogged down on the pros and cons of a given change, but rather what the change means in terms of what we get to do with it. Um, and, you know, I, I like the orange sweatshirt. I don't know that we'll do anything with it, but I think it was fun. Um, and other than that, no, I'm excited. I'm glad that they shook things up. I am a aggressive proponent of big case changes. I think the shift to a nationals new case was a great thing for AMTA. I like I think it's good for us to keep challenging people to revisit and revise and and make people think on their feet in rounds. Yeah, to echo what Tom said about TBC, um for for sure changed broadened my horizons about how you can approach a case and how quickly you can do it. Tom's even kind of used it as a cudgel sometimes. Like I'll be like, ah, well, I got some stuff and maybe I, it might be three days before I have that opening memorized. I'd be like, you did it in half an hour at trial by combat. You can <laughs> find half an hour. I'd be like, yeah, I can do that. Um, so you definitely would agree with Tom on that, uh, on, on that front. Um, that was a, a, a really powerful experience for me. Um, to be honest, <laughs> I haven't really touched the case changes, <laughs> so I I can't really add anything on that. Um, I've been in finals last week. That is fair. But but yeah, the, the, the Cooper change is crazy. I've had a couple conversations with people who are on the case committee, and, and I think I'm really looking forward to seeing. I mean, look, at the end of the day, this case is more similar to two years ago with the winter case where – you know, than it was last year where you're, and, and typically with Silver's Criminal, I think it's this way where, you know, maybe things are a little narrower, but I do think that the changes will, um, you know, give teams a little bit more, I don't know, freedom is the right word, but just the ability to branch out a little bit more and get into some of the stuff that we see frequently uh, when you get into spring and, and AMTA. Uh, so before we wrap up, I, I sort of have one more question for each of you. And, and Tom, I want to start with you because it's something I was going to ask you about earlier and I just sort of forgot to ask you about it now, which is that, you obviously competed in college uh, and then you've been coaching high school for a number of years. And then, you know, recently you made the transition to, to coaching college. Uh, and I, I'm someone I competed in high school, competed in college. And I'm just really curious about that transition and what are you finding? I mean, obviously you've had tremendous success over the last couple of years since you came into Stanford. Uh, what are you finding is uh, what were you able to carry over? What have you had to adjust since you made the transition from really co- being a full-time high school mock trial coach to now more of like a full-time college mock trial coach? Yeah, um, it's really interesting. I, I think a lot about sort of my time even as a competitor versus, you know, now it's been a long, a long time. Um, <laughs> it's, been about a, it's been about 10 years. Um, and I, I do think that I try to carry through sort of learnings year over year. Uh, high schoolers, and some of this is that I'm just fortunate enough with the Stanford team that they're really remarkable. High school takes a lot more development work. Um, the, it, and so it's rewarding, actually, as a coach in somewhat of a different way. You're, you're dealing with really malleable talent day in and day out, and you're building confidence, and you're training life skills. And, and we're doing that, too, at the college level. But I view one of the big things, and, and Jack pushes me on this because I, I make the eboard and teams a promise sort of at the start of every year to this effect but i don't want to run the stanford team like a 
a dictatorship. Like that's not the goal. I want to be able to have really productive, meaningful, collaborative conversations about what we should do. And I think at the high school level in particular, it's a little bit more top down. And so I've had to be a little bit more open to Jack changing my mind, which he does more than I, I care to admit. Um, and, and, you know, not just Jack, I, I think that's team wide and, and that's a good thing. So that would be my, probably my single biggest shift. And, and Menlo was really high performing and it was truly collaborative. I think one of the differences is the depth of people who you're collaborating with. So, you know, I, I got to coach Andy Parker and Tiffany Tam, and both of them are well known now on the college circuit. And we had collegial relationships by the end of those sort of runs. Um, but I wouldn't say that that held through with everybody when I coached high school in the way that it does more at the collegiate level. You're working with adults. It's, it's just a little different. Um, I'll add the collegiate system versus the high school system also just gives you way more flexibility to get creative. I And so I've had to sort of expand my own even lens in terms of what I'm thinking about as options as a coach um, and trying to start conversations not from as regimented of a place uh, and trying to be really open. So that's how I, I would answer that, I think. Um, I, I really love the work. I, I love the work at the high school level. I, I really love it at the college level. It's different. It scratches a different itch for me as a coach. And I and I find the work with our team really inspiring as well. So I don't know. I love both of them, but they're different. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think, you know, I've only dabbled just a little bit into coaching the high school world, you know, just a tiny bit at, at my former high school uh, that I competed at. And I think that the blending of high school mock trial, college mock trial, law school mock trial is, is a fascinating issue. And so that's that's good insight into how those, you know, worlds interact and, and how they cross over to each other. Uh, Jack, my last question for you before we wrap up, obviously you've been competing with Stanford for a couple of years now, and this is your senior season. You're going to the, uh, you know, the spring portion of, of your senior season, looking forward to, you know, hopefully one last run. So how are you feeling about that, about your, you know, going into AMTA competition and then obviously doing trial by combat, uh, you know, June after that. And, and then also, you know, if you know yet, where are you headed after you finish up at Stanford? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't have an answer to your last question. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I'm That's still fair. figuring it out. Um, uh, I, I think I hope uh, law school down the line, but I'd like to do something for a few years beforehand. Um, and I don't quite know what that is yet. Uh, no worries, Jack. I'm the same way. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's pretty weird because you know they they kick you out after four years and you have to figure it out. But so um, yeah, it's ridiculous. But I, yeah, it's 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 also incredibly weird that I won't be doing this anymore. Um, and I a count myself lucky that I've been doing it for so long. B would very much like to win a national title. Um, C, uh, I'd like to help leave a legacy. Um, and you know, the program will go on and, and be pretty fantastic without me. Um, but I'd like to help leave a legacy that promotes, you know, a culture on the team, uh, that's really healthy and that's, um, that, that sort of gives the team even more inertia to continue on, um, sort of for many, many years. Uh, so I think those, those, those two things are really in my mind for the next, I don't know, five or four months, uh, that I have left. Um, I'm excited to do TBC again. 
uh, it was a really incredible experience the first time. Um, and it's, it's more than anything. It's, it's sort of a, a, a really, a really powerful intellectual test and, and, um, a, a, a test of sort of your wits over a course of 24 hours, um, and 48 hours. Um, so I'm excited to do it again. Uh, but all in all, I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say, and it's hard to, to, um, to, to really, uh, put into words how much this activity has meant to me over the years. Um, and what a, what a huge part of my life it's been. Um, so I'm sad to see it go, uh, though comes a time. Now that that's fair. I mean, it, it's something, you know, from a coach's perspective, you deal with it every year where you, and I'm, I'm sure Tom agrees with me about you and, and about just other students where you pour several years of, you know, energy and, in, into, someone and, and really getting to know them and then they graduate and then they're gone. And it's, it's a, it's a tough part of, of this activity. And, and I know um, it's something that as competitors, you know, I, I went through it, you know, you and Drew are going through it. You know, a lot of our listeners, I'm sure we'll go through it soon. And, and uh, I'm excited to see how you guys do in the spring and excited to, you know, hopefully get a chance to see you again at trial by combat this year. And, and, more than anything, we really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to us. Uh, you know, like we said before, we're two guys clustered within a couple hundred miles of each other on the East Coast. And so it's fun to get some outside perspective on, you know, how things are going on the other coast. And hopefully, you know, we'll get into the spring season and, and things will be interesting. So, Tom, Jack, thank you guys so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Right on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. We, we're excited to be on. Uh, we appreciate what you guys are doing on this. Well, thank you. And and we're, like I said, we're thrilled to chat with you guys. And uh, this has been another episode of The Mock Review with Ben and Drew.